It's the Ride All Night Podcast, with stories of friends and family of the band from Good Homes. Started during the pandemic of 2020 and continuing until we're done. Thank you, we're trying some new things here. Okay, here it comes. We've got a million people to thank. Today on the podcast, we welcome Darren Jacks. Darren is the executive producer of Charlie Loves Our Band, the story of From Good Homes. This film would have not been possible without Darren's support and unending enthusiasm. I've just loved working with him over the past several years, and he is the best executive producer you could ask for. There was never an obstacle too big to overcome. He always keeps his cool, and he always brings a smile and a laugh to every situation. I am truly grateful to have had this opportunity to work with him and to now call him a good friend. Darren has been almost a lifetime member of the Conestoga Trail Daredevil Club. I actually just made that up. And, as you will hear, he lived right across the street from Brady and Scott Reimer. He has quite a character arc, from his days of creative commerce as a young man in Sparta to his very successful 40-year career in the industrial packaging and chemical distribution business which still occupies a good portion of his time, as well as owning an offshore sport fishing charter company, which has been a passion of his, along with music and a little bit of golf for many years. Time on the golf course with Todd Schaefer certainly helped get this film project started and tweaked it along the way. Of course, I knew of the infamous Darren Jacks back in the day, but we weren't real close. I bumped into him on November 21st, 2013 at the From Good Homes concert at the Mayo Performing Arts Center in Morristown, New Jersey. During our brief backstage chat, we found that we both had a connection to Vermont, where I live in Montpelier, and Darren had a second home in Stowe. We started a series of late-night conversations reminiscing about the good old days back in Sparta and, of course, our favorite band, From Good Homes, Sometime around 2018, the idea of a film started to get ahead of steam, and we're both thrilled to be sharing it with the world now. Again, I'm really grateful for my friendship with Darren and his continued support to make this film a reality. Please enjoy my conversation with Darren Jacks. Uh, sure, my name is uh, Darren Jacks. I am uh, the executive producer of, uh, of this project, this documentary film that we're, uh, we're putting together, which is uh, actually a figment of, of Darren and, and Vic's uh, imagination or desires of four, five, six years ago that we've been fortunate enough to finally have, uh, have come to fruition here. If you can recall those conversations, what was the early ideas and what is the intention? Well, I think um, the early ideas, which is hopefully culminating in the intention, was to try and capture 
the music scene that has developed going back 40 plus years uh, in Spartan, New Jersey or, or more broad-based Sussex County, New Jersey and just the influences that have come from that music as the decades have passed on and still living on today in various different in incarnations but most importantly in From Good Homes coming together to do a uh, to do a reunion at a, at a very nostalgic place for many people called Waterloo Village. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right, so let's get some frame of reference then if we're talking about that place. Tell me a little bit about you, where you were born, maybe if, whether it was in that place or yeah, just up some early history of you, personally. Sure. I was born in, uh, in Patterson, New Jersey. Came from um, Italian immigrants on my mother's side and some uh, German, Polish, Lithuanian and a little bit of who knows what immigrants on the other side that came from uh, rather economically challenged uh, background in uh, originally Jersey City, then Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, which culminated in a move out to Sparta back in 1907, uh, excuse me, 1960, 67, where I started going to uh, grammar school, first grade at uh, Alpine School in Sparta. Alpine School, place where Brady Reimer and the little band that could just played a benefit show last year at, so that, that struck some memories. And um, uh, moved once or twice within Sparta and ended up in a neighborhood called uh, Churchill. Um, when I moved to Churchill, we shortly had, we soon after had some uh, neighbors that moved in across the street. And uh, there was a fellow named Dick and his wife Connie, and they had two boys named Scott and Brady, and hence it turned out to be the Rhymers. And uh, must be going back to 74 or 5 ish. Please don't hold my dates to the T here. It was a little bit ago. But um, we just became friends because we lived across the street from each other, and they had. Um, they had a, a big bad Honda QA50 motorcycle, and it was during the times when Evil Knievel was 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 one of the hottest things going. I guess he had just a little bit of sanity going at that stage of the game, and it was after the Caesar's Palace motorcycle crash, and we decided to start utilizing the QA50 and jumping barrels and making ramps and you know burning out up up and down the avenue, and we just became friendly like any old other 13, 14 year old kids would and that's where the relationship started that was obviously a few years prior to when the whole uh the whole music thing began so you remember when the rhymers moved in um i remember when the rhymers moved into the neighborhood and i also uh remember i believe it was christmas of 1975 when uh the rhymers uh mother connie uh for christmas i'm quite sure uh, came home with two guitars, came home with a bass guitar and a six-string electric guitar. And originally, Scott Reimer was a bass player and Brady Reimer was the guitar player. And it was, it was in complete infancy, the, eons ago before anybody thought about writing music. It was just kind of a, you know, a fun thing. The only thing they were missing was a drum kit and a couple other pals to hang out with. And that, and that came shortly after.
doesn't know Sparta. What was it like to, to grow up in Sparta? What was Sparta, New Jersey like back then? Well, um, Sparta was very, very interesting, uh, interesting place back in the in the seventies. Both the the episodes that were going on in the school system and just the culture of the late seventies. Um, needless to say, uh, it, it was very drug infused environment. I, I started running with a crowd that was just a little bit older, a little bit uh, mature, and a little bit more advanced in that world than say Todd and Brady and Fitz. Of course, this is before. Uh, before Jamie and, and Dano's time here, and uh, Sparta was a very interesting community, one that I took for granted when I go back there today. It's, it's really incredible what a, what a beautiful spot it is. I mean, people going down on the, on the boardwalk and taking their families down there. I mean, for me to zoom back to the boardwalk in Sparta based on this genre, uh, this really wasn't a place that you wanted to be. At times, it wasn't even a safe place to be. There was a lot of illicit activity that would go on there and throwing ice balls at cars and and running from the uh, from the cops it was very very contentious environment the the sparta police were always against the um the heads if you want to call it you know the schools were segregated amongst the jocks and the heads two two very different um you know cultures that were forced to meld into one and and going back to the sparta glen there were there were frequently big barbecues on on the holidays i remember uh, I remember getting arrested for nothingness in the uh, one Fourth of July in the in the, the Sparta Glen here, and, and Dave Delay and Donnie Earl were. Um, it, it was just a very contentious time with a hotbed of activity, and of course it was before cell phones and AIDS and and you know a lot of the things that for the better or worse we we live with in today's society. Um, quite frankly, I'll take it back in a second. About early days when music first started becoming important to you, how is that just you know, personally, regardless of the thumbs at home parameters? When did you first start playing music? What were the records? How did you listen to music? And what was it like back then? What was the music like back then? Well, um, I can tell you um, the first album that I bought, and this was, I mean, back when eight tracks were there and, and coming of age here, and I would listen to a little music because uh, one of my other better friends at the time who was also friendly with the Rhymers was a 
was a chap named Carl Halpin, and he lived uh, he lived down the street, and he had a couple older sisters that were more tied into the early 70s. So we would see them coming and going from from concerts, and we would hear music and listen to music. But the first album that I ever purchased uh, was was really a very complex musical passage. It was uh, Cheech and Chong's Big Bamboo, which created a whole ruckus in the house anyway, because of course my father wanted to know, you know, what are these huge gigantic rolling papers that are in the middle of this album? Why did you have to buy this one? Yada, yada. Um, I believe the second and third and fourth albums I bought that come to mind were the James Gang, Joe Walsh and the James Gang. I played it a thousand times over. Early Yes, we used to play on vinyl uh, endlessly, constantly with Yes. Um, certainly some Allman Brothers started coming into play and and um, I was always very into audio equipment. Another, you know, there was, there was some things that transpired in Sparta back then um, where people just found a way to get a hold of audio equipment, maybe audio equipment that was well above and beyond our legitimate budgets at the time. So somehow or another, we stumbled across this audio equipment and there was a whole, whether it was Mike King or Troy Litzenberg or, or Billy across the street from me or Carl Halpin and people were just constantly permanently borrowing audio equipment from other folks when they weren't home and it just became this sort of thing that's not so great or nothing to really be proud of, but we always had good audio gear, you know, and if you want to speak early on with From Good Homes, I remember uh, I had a, a Pioneer 1010, a big, big receiver that somehow me and me and my late buddy, my good buddy from years gone by, Troy Tenike, who, who we all miss, um, uh, we were both thrown out of school and somehow or another we stumbled across this stereo system with this Pioneer 1010 and big gigantic big four speakers and I decided one day to see how far down Conestoga Trail they would play. So I turned the speakers out my window which set up on a hill right across the street from Reimer's house and just blasted it and sent Carl Halpin as far down as he could down Conestoga Trail, made its way past Sue Earl's house almost to his house. It apparently did not go over well with the Rhymers also. So um, that was uh, uh, that was just a particular circumstance that needed a payback and, and ultimately I ended up getting one because uh, I was sleeping after I guess a long hard night. I really wasn't that into school and, and less into work of course at the time. And uh, <clears throat> my windows were open and I was sleeping and, and uh, Scott and Brady decided that it was time for Darren to wake up so they got a hold of some of the amps and some of the stacks they were using in the basement and blasted them right in my window. I hit the ceiling. I mean, I was, I was bejeezed, scared out of my mind. Only look out the window to see those guys saying, good morning, Darren.
did you first see them play somewhere besides the basement? You know, I have to say some of the earlier gigs I remember, this is even before Crows, uh, which was, was a bar and establishment down by the boardwalk in town, which, which became a home away from home for these guys and, and for a lot of them individually as the years went on also. Um, I remember the um, Sparta High School Auditorium. Remember clearly, somehow or another, they were working there. Remember they were in there. This was just after 1977, I guess. I remember them doing a, uh, a cover version of uh, Bertha with, uh, with uh, Vince Parati uh, on vocals, actually. And uh, uh, I want to say there might have been a, a Fire on the Mountain or a Scarlet Begonias with Faith DeMarco and Vince Parati doing a duet. Really formative stuff. Not a, not a lot of buyers for that particular music at the time, but we were all kids. and and having fun and, and as time went on when Rare Breed, I believe it's around the time it sort of segued into Old Crow, did a, uh, did a battle of bands uh, at Sparta High School in the, uh, in the gymnasium and uh, that, that was just very interesting. They were up against a couple other bands. One of them, I just don't recall the name, was, it was a real good band from out of town and they were a good cover band and, and From Good Homes was sort of getting there and you know, grinding their way through, and they were okay at what they did, and and the other band uh, just just really took took the day away. I remember the show. I did I did the intro at the show, and uh, actually introduced them as uh, introduced the sax player as as he was eloquently more eloquently known as Hot Fucking Hummel, and and that, that you know that that type of language didn't go over well. Some people got the got all all bent out of shape over that, and uh, uh, and they lost. They absolutely lost. The other band killed them, but it was. Uh, it was a home field gig and they won for some particular yeah. reason. Yeah. So I remember that as an early one. Alpine Pool, playing at the Alpine Pool up by up by Fitzy's house a little bit. There were some there were some things that went on there with the music uh, when people would just take off from school. We would do these large boycotts and just a whole bunch of people wouldn't go to school so they couldn't really individually uh, you know, get on get on people there and and I, I guess maybe the most memorable were the, the the numerous shows that transpired um, at the Friedhoff's house. There were two fellows that were very involved in the scene, the entire scene that I just talked about. Uh, Mike Friedhoff and Eddie Friedhoff, and and their mother was very liberal about what would go on there. And and you know we just took that to the hilt. And and the band would play there regularly. I remember it in their backyard countless times. And we'd have keggers. You know everyone would rustle up a dollar or a dollar twenty-five to. You know, to get in for all the beer you could drink, and and they they just became labeled as the Friedhof Freak Festivals, and there were there were a bunch of them. You know, almost almost like the acid tests in the '60s, where Grateful Dead became the house band. Well, From Good Homes or whatever their name, the incarnation of, the, of their name was at that time, became the house band for the Friedhof Freak Festivals, and there were guests all the time. Mike Friedhof would get up and. And you know the band would do covers of Rolling Stones, and, and he would cover uh, "Give Me Shelter," and and uh, and Jim Morrison. Doors was easy music to play, and they were covering it, and you know, "L.A. Woman," and, and all these things. And they were just really uh, interesting, formative uh, times, not only in my life, but I'm gonna go out on a limb and say the lives of the fellows in the band too. Yeah. And so when we talked to Todd, he mentioned. The Grateful Dead influence, and he said that came from you, perhaps from the show in English Town. Yes, um, <clears throat> I was not was not into Grateful Dead music or or jam band music of 
of any variety. We were into a little bit of Southern Rock. I mean, you know, Skinner and Molly Hatchet and, and the Outlaws were definitely in the mix. But it was about <clears throat> Ted Nugent and Ozzy Osbourne and, and really heavier types of music. And I ended up buying a ticket. In fact, tickets were $7.50. Uh, which was a stretch in, in and amongst itself, and I ended up paying ten dollars to uh, to a fellow named uh, Mike King, who had some extra tickets, or he was brokering tickets, or whatever he was brokering brokering that 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 particular week. But um, uh, I ended up going off to this show, um, leaving from Long Beach Island. I was waiting for a friend of all of ours, Roger Satterfield, to come down and pick me up, and for some reason. Roger didn't show up, and uh, Howard Dieterle showed up at my parents' house with Roger's ticket at 6 o'clock in the morning on uh, Labor Day 77, or September 3rd, Labor Day or the day of, and Howard and I hitchhiked up to Englishtown. And, uh, you know, we got there early in the morning, turned out to be a 150,000-person event. Uh, Grateful Dead was the headliner, new riders started early in the afternoon, and, and Marshall Tucker was stuck in the middle, and... Uh, and it, it was just hot as balls. It was just really a, a, a brutally long day and, and, and really, really drug-infused. I remember doing these, these purple barrels of THC, and then, then we hooked up with uh, Vicky Tambini and Gene Moltenberg, and some blotter acid came into it, and nobody had anything to drink except Mertz, who... who who came up with a bottle of blackberry brandy that really, really quenched the thirst well on a hundred degree day. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the day went on and, and, and it just ended. And, you know, I ended up falling asleep behind some gas station that night and lost everybody. I, I lost Howard Dieterle early in the day. He went into the liquor store there and, and there was very little left on the shelves, but whatever there, he decided he was going to take for free. And then we left and, and when we finally got into the place, we had to walk three, four, five miles to get in. There were a bunch of motorcycles, and Howard was already a little tuned up, and he knocked over one of the Pagan's motorcycles. And I said, Howard, nice to know you. I ain't going to be around for this. So I took off, never saw Howard again uh, you know, until we got back to Sparta, who knows when later. But that was an extremely influential day. It was, it was the only show, the Grateful Dead, uh, outdoor show they did that summer. It was a massive turnout that John Shear put on. They used uh, shipping containers to make a perimeter around the field. And um, it was just a very interesting day that changed my life. Needless to say, when I got back to Sparta, you know, I swaggered on over across the street to the Rhymers and the guys were there doing whatever. And I'm like, you got to check out some of this stuff here. And, and they did. And we started living, we got some eight tracks and started listening. And again, before any songwriting was into the mix, uh, I, to me, I think that was where things took a little shift to get more into a different, a different blend of music rather than the Kiss and the heavier metal type things. And obviously, it took many nuances down the road as the years have gone on to lead us up to today. But I think that was a pretty instrumental time. It was it was that influence to the Grateful Dead, and some of those influences are, are evident today, whether whether folks notice it or not.
Thank you. I want to ask you about like the musical influence and why it's so important. But first, you've hinted about early days in Sparta and the type of person that you and we and and then boardwalk, right? They go down to the boardwalk and they see the Dairy Creamy and all the boats and the flowers. Just a little bit more about boardwalk and those days and what it was like, what Sparta was like. I mean, sure, Vic. I, you know, I, I'd be happy to talk about the boardwalk back in the day. Again, it was it was a hotbed of activity. It it was where people would go. It was the focal center of you know what are you doing? Not I'm going to the movies. I'm going to watch a ball game. I'm going to hang. I'm going to hang on the boards, and and that's what it was. And sitting on that rail for hours upon hours upon hours. How many people? You say people. How many people? Oh, on a Friday night in the summer, there, there were times when it got up to 100 or 150 or two, and, and all the way down at the end of the boardwalk, a lot of different activities that, that, that took place down there. And, and, uh, and again, you know, not, at the risk of being redundant, Sparta was, was a very tumultuous you know, place at the time. You know, if you want to go back to Sparta High School, I mean, it, I didn't realize it until, until years later, but um, there was a big battle between the teachers and their union and the Board of Ed and everything. And, and, and the teachers were just turning a, a, a blind eye to everything. And I, I vividly remember my first day at, at Sparta High School, which uh, if I would have graduated, it would have been 79. So it must have been 70, uh, 75, uh, taking the bus with uh, another one of our brothers that's gone, a fellow named uh, Frank Monjovi that uh, had a very, very, very uh, difficult and untimely, untimely passing here. Um, and on our way on the bus, we were in, in the back of the bus, and he says, I got these joints, you know, you think there's any way we're going to be able to smoke them? And I said, Frank, I, I don't know, let's go check it out and let's see what's going on. I remember rolling in to the smoking circle, as it was referred to, which was in between the old Sparta High School building and, and, and the, the annex. And it, it was virtually a Grateful Dead show without the band. I, I mean, there were four-foot bongs, people smoking joints, Jack Daniels, shots of whiskey, whiskey bongs for that matter. And, and it, it was just a, just a bizarre, absolutely bizarre situation. Who would ever think that something like this would transpire in, in school or in high school? And I mean, in between classes. Everybody would, oh yeah, and there were actually cigarettes involved too, but I forgot about the cigarettes. You know, people would, would, would run back to the smoking circle, you know, and even if it was raining, there was a little platform on the, you know, little platform on the side, and there was enough room for 10 people, and 20 people would be jammed under there, grabbing and, and stealing joints. Carl Halpin was the biggest bogart of a joint I've ever seen in my life. I mean, nobody could suck down half a joint with two huffs like Carl Halpin could, and it, there was, again, it was an older influence, some of the other fellows, a lot of folks, unfortunately, that are gone. The drug scene had, you know, we can laugh and joke about some of this, but it had, it had gotten, gotten bad, you know. So heavy narcotics got into the, got into the situation. Just a whole litany of people are, you know, gone due to, due to overdoses and dr drug-related uh, related circumstances. And, you know, we can sit back and talk about the good old times, but it's actually kind of sad. A bunch of them, a bunch of bunch of people we grew up with. You know, Sparta just had a, a, a little bit of a knack for tragedies.
the thing, especially as it got into the late 80s, about what I used to refer to as hip-hop is it was and still is its own uh, genre of music. Vic, if you remember, you and I had, had discussed this, you know, four, five, six years ago about how do we, how do we try and put it in the history books here? And that's ultimately what, what we're doing now, not so much in the interviews with myself and the other people, but certainly the, the upcoming show and some of the archival footage that you've been able to retrieve and, and share with people. And, and, and the reason I've gotten behind this whole thing is because it is, it is unique. It's, it's not jam band, it's not rock and roll, it's not heavy metal, it's its own genre to me, call it hip hop or not. It's, I, you know, I love acoustic instruments and it, it, it's certainly got its, its, its acoustic, but it's got its, its, its rock and roll moments at the same time. And then, you, and then you come to this genre of music that means a lot to me and many of the other folks. It's been a very, very important element in my life. I find this to be unique 40 some odd years later. Um, you know, I, I enjoy the fact that uh, the, the fellows are off on their own, um, you know, successful individual careers and they really do more than just from good homes and that, that means a lot to me also. Um, but I, um, I'm happy to be here to enjoy it and I'm proud to, proud to support it. I got, we'll wrap up soon, but a couple things we talked about, like early 90s, you were a deadhead, touring deadhead, and you think you and Kenny, thinking about the From Good Homes timeline, like um, how you were describing that the dead were kind of offering questionable entertainment, perhaps. So talk about that, you had mentioned, or, you know, when you started saying, hmm, maybe the From Good Homes is a better alternative, perhaps. Oh, sure, Vic. I, you know, I speak with Kenny about this this frequently, you know, as, as, as the time went on. And, um, you know, for some reason, there always seems to be a, a, a bit of a tie between the deadheads and the jam band community and From Good Homes, and, and, and certainly Railroad Earth is that, as that rolls down the tracks now, nowadays also. Um, Back in the, the late 90s, uh, Kenny, uh, Kenny Unclaus and I would, would frequently have an opportunity to say, you know, what do you want to do? You want to go catch the dead here? Uh, now, let's drive down to 930 Club in Washington and go see From Good Homes or, ah, forget it, let's get in the car and go six hours up to the, up to the higher ground, the old higher ground in, uh, in Vermont. It just became a better alternative to us as, as you know, Jerry's, Jerry's health started to fail and then the music became la less 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 than it was you know at its peak i also remember uh, very vividly if you want to tie this to the whole grateful dead thing that the week that uh, jerry garcia died in august 95 uh from good homes happened to be touring and warming up for bobby weir's uh side project rat dog and it wasn't the first time it was the second time i believe i believe two or three times they've they've warmed up so they they got to know uh you know those guys you know bobby weir and rob washman and jay lane pretty well and I had gone to a number of shows. I remember uh, uh, Kim Nab being at a number of those shows with me, and it was either the day before, two days before uh, Garcia died, sitting uh, sitting on the side of the stage watching Holmes, and uh, you know, and and you know, Bobby Weir rolled out, and I was smoking a cigar at the time, and I looked over and said, "Oh, did, oh, is this cigar bothering you?" I, I said, "Oh, Bobby." He said, "No, no, no, it's not at all." So we started talking about the shift in the music at the time, as the '90s. 90s came in and even Bobby started mentioning I said you know what's happening with this you know people climbing on roofs and collapsing and fences you got this whole violent element and the scene in the parking lot is just getting way way and it's been way out of control for a long time and and at that time I really noticed the shift as Gen X was taking over and you know some of the some of the music that was really there more to more to ease the soul if I could put it that way had just just been taking on a more 
a, 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 a more violent element to it and it was bothering everybody and, and that tour uh, you know, I didn't go on with him the next day or the next night, but Jerry had died and that had to be a very difficult uh, night for both From Good Homes and, and Bobby to get through. It was literally the day Jerry died. They still got out there on that stage and, and put on a show. And then at the end of the tour, we, we wrapped it up after the Tower Theater show. I went back for a big party and whatnot. And I, just, I just remember those, those were not particularly fond times because everybody was very, very solemn. But uh, I just remember those uh, as being uh, interesting formative for me, continually formative, but changing times in the music scene, or at least in the way that I viewed the music scene. Yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't mention Irving Plaza because it was just a period of my time when I lived in Manhattan, uh, you know, and from good homes at Irving Plaza, they had held the record, may still hold the record for the most sold out shows, just years of tremendously good times in the city and, and hanging out in the light booth with, with, with Scott Reimer and, and truthfully some of the memories that are, that are even more vivid to me are of but two folks that just have to get accolades uh, in this in this production we're doing being uh, being Tom McLaughlin and and Rachel. You know they were they they were just the biggest supporters going a lot of time a lot of effort and uh, when we put this whole thing together I've mentioned to a couple of the band members this this will not hit the screen unless Tom and Rachel get a look, get some sort of accolade in the, in this film because they were. It just became inbred in them as it has with me and, and with a lot, of, a lot of other folks also, you know. And then Tommy and Rachel got dealt some, some pretty tough, tough hands in life, but it, it just, it, 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 was, it was baked into their being. They were just hugely important and specifically during that, that Irving Plaza time period. It was just, the boys were really in stride here and it was, it was a special time and they were just, they were just blowing it out. It was, it was just really, really fond memories of, of those days. What is it that like the homes keep playing as whatever manifestation they are and people keep coming around? What is it that, that brings those people, brings people together in that way? 
Look, in, in, in my mind, there's something that has to click in the music. There's something that has to connect the folks to keep them coming back. If they didn't enjoy it, they wouldn't come back. They'd move on to a different genre. But there's something in the unique aspect of, of From Good Homes, even as, as they've evolved throughout the years, that, that just gets into people's soul and keeps them coming back. And for me, too. I, I love nothing more than going to have a few cocktails, going to From, From Good Homes show and just leaving my worries behind for that three and a half hours, you know? And, and yeah, you know, Vic, I just, I just think it comes down to the synergy amongst them. You know, they've been doing it for, for a long, long time here. And it's just like, you know, growing up with a brother or sister, you know, you know what their next move is gonna be, you know what their next word is gonna be. And, and although there have been long periods of time, I mean, when it ended in 1999, I, I kind of called that as the end of set one, you know? And then there was 10, 10 year intermission. And when they came back to the Mercury Lounge in, in 09, that was sort of the beginning of set two. And the way I see things now is, you know, we're, we're, we're full steam ahead in, in set two. Cool. Well, any, uh, I think we covered a lot. Any final thoughts? or? Um... Well, I think we did pretty well here. You know, we, we, we covered a bunch. And I'm just happy to... Uh, you know, like, like Keith Richards says, I mean, I'm happy to be here, I'm happy to be anywhere, you know, and, and, and happy that uh, we can be here doing this, I'm, I'm having fun with it, and Vic, I appreciate your, your efforts in, in getting this whole thing going, and I, I look forward to putting this, uh, you know, this production out. Once it's there, it's in the history books, and nobody can take it from us, and I, I feel good about that. I, I feel uh, uh, blessed to have the opportunity to, to do it, and I get, I get my own personal good, good feelings from that, and I just hope that... I hope that others will down the road when they get a couple of chuckles out of the interviews with, with all of us. That's really how I feel. I'm wearing it on my shirt sleeve there. It's all right.